0: Amen and good morning. Uh, hey, there you go, a little response. Uh, hey, I'm really excited about jumping into the book of Daniel with you again. If you're, if you're new around here, we go through books of the Bible mostly and we take little pauses in between and uh, right now we just started a sermon series through the book of Daniel that will take us into the summer and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible, grab that, find your way to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. You know, Daniel is different than every other book in the Old Testament because it's written from within enemy territory. Um, Most other books are written from Jerusalem. They're speaking into situations, but Daniel's different than that. Matter of fact, one thing you might not notice unless you understand language is that the book of Daniel has this transition point between chapter 1 and chapter 2 where Daniel stops writing in Hebrew and he starts writing in Aramaic, which is the common language of the Babylonians. There's a specific intentionality behind that that scholars have debated for a long time, but here's the reason. Daniel is writing in the common language of the culture because, well, he lives within the culture. You see, like many of us, all of us, we live within a certain cultural context. We don't isolate ourselves from the outside and speak into it. No, God has placed us into a specific time and a specific season. Y'all, the church is supposed to be a beacon of hope in the middle of a dark world. What I hope that you'll see over the next several months is this, is that God really is real, he's tangible, and he gives us practical ways to live and thrive in the culture that he sent us. Like like I told you last week, the big idea for the entire book of Daniel is this, believers need to learn how to live in Babylon without letting Babylon live in them. That is the point of the entire book of Daniel. God wants to show you how to live and thrive in the middle of the culture in which he sent you without letting that culture live inside of you. See, Babylon represented the kingdoms of this world. It represented everything that God was not. And the reality is, again, every single one of us live in the middle of this Babylonian culture where it represents everything that God is not. And he wants you to learn and he wants you to see that you can not only survive, but thrive in the middle of culture. A friend of mine, true story, um, about 18 years ago, moved to a remote island off the coast of Indonesia, where he was doing tsunami relief work um, right after the tsunami hit. He he told me that he had moved to this remote island, and him and his family lived there for five years on this island um, called Similu. Wherever they had, they lived literally in tents, had no electricity, and the only way that they survived was by going lobster diving off the coast. Well, he said that what ended up happening because they didn't have much sophistication is they would deplete the lobsters that were close in off the reef and they had to continue to go further and further out to find more reefs. Well, during this day, they brought in some expert Navy SEAL divers to help train the local indigenous people on some diving techniques and they had to go about three hours off the coast into the Indian Ocean to where there was absolutely nothing around. Well, he said this day, it was different than most days. It was an overcast sky, and he could tell that things weren't quite normal, and yet they pressed through anyway because, you know, all of them seemed to be professionals. He, as, they go, as they went about the journey, about a mile or about an hour into it, he started to get seasick, which never happened, and he was deathly ill. Well, they get to the place where they're diving, and he's feeling terrible, and the heavens start to open. I'm talking like a scene from Castaway right? The winds are ferocious. He told me that the the swells on the ocean had to be 30 feet, and he's on this wooden fishing boat with nothing but a small electric pump to pump out the water as it's coming. He told me that it got to the point in which they were all really, really scared, and he thought that they were going to die. Him, Him being the worst, he's seasick. He's completely out of his misery. He grabs onto a pole, on the front of the boat and holds on for dear life. He did what you would do in this situation, what any of us would do when there's no other options. He prayed, he prayed. He he told me, he prayed this exact prayer. God, you have power to control the winds and the waves and I'm asking you to stop this storm. You know what happened next? Nothing, absolutely nothing. The rain continued to beat down He continued to be scared to death and then he told me in this moment, it was like God spoke audibly to him and here's what he said. He said God told him in this moment, I don't really care about calming the storms. I care about calming your heart in the storm. Do you trust me? As he's holding on for dear life there, that was what came over his head is do you trust me? Y'all, that is a profound statement. My buddy felt like in that moment, God had stopped All things to test his faith in the middle of the storm. In Daniel chapter 2, God does the exact same thing. He sets up a situation in which the king of Babylon creates an impossible task, and he makes it clear that he is going to kill everyone unless they can interpret his dream that he doesn't give them any information about. It seemed impossible. Maybe you come into this room, you walk in here, and honestly, you feel like you're in an impossible situation. Maybe the debt is piling up, and, and you feel like you're becoming a slave to the creditor, and you don't even know how you're going to make your next payment. Everything seems to be going wrong. The hospital bills are piling up, and you don't understand what to do, so you go to bed every night with a heavy burden on your chest. Maybe for some of you, you're carrying the weight of a sick child, or, or a child that you've raised your entire, their entire life to walk with Jesus, and they've simply walked away, and honestly, you feel helpless. Maybe your situation is not as big, but listen to me, it's no less real to you, right? You feel like you don't measure up. You think you're going to be single forever. It seems like everybody else around you is getting promoted and they're they're doing really well and you just can't catch a break. Today I want to show you a couple practical ways that Daniel exercised faith in the middle of what seemed like an impossible situation and then I want to give you a hope a hope that is found in this passage that if you can cling to it in the middle of the storm will give you, if you will, a life raft for life. Now we're gonna cover a lot of material, all right? I'm gonna do a flyover of the entire chapter of Daniel chapter two. If you look at your Bible, it's a lot of text. What I wanna encourage you to do is I want you to go back and reread it because I can't do all that. I'm gonna just cover the narrative, point out some things along the way and give you some application. All right, Daniel chapter two, it starts off like this. King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that continues to reoccur in his life and he wakes up with cold sweats from this nightmare. Here's what it says. In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and they stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So King Neb, he has this reoccurring dream in his life, and this reoccurring dream is troubling him to the point in which he doesn't know what to do. By the way, if I can just point out really quickly that God still speaks like this. For some odd reason, we live in this Western world where we don't see that this physical world is not all that there is. There's a spiritual realm that goes on all around us right now, and if we can recognize that, what you would see is that God is in the works and in the details. It happens all the time. Like nothing in the Bible says otherwise, and unfortunately for too many of us, we seem to be too spiritual or too enlightened to let God speak. Here's something I've learned. God is always working in the details to accomplish his plans if you would just recognize it. I've seen it happen in the Middle East where God shows up in a Muslim's dreams, and then then he brings along a believer to tell them that that dream was about Jesus. I've experienced it in my own life. Over a decade ago, whenever my wife and I, I kid you not, we get to the end of ourselves, we can't pay our bills um, in this ministry position, I walked into a church and there was an envelope to this day, I don't know where it came from, with the exact amount of money that we needed to make it to the next season. Y'all, God is in the details, but one thing that I need you to understand is that God always uses his people to accomplish his plan. Just like King Neb had a dream and needed it to be interpreted, he needed a Daniel to come alongside of him and do it. In the same way, people all over the world are struggling, and they need you, they need God's church to step into the gaps. You see, God could do it any way that he chose to do it, and he chooses to change the world through his church. That's what you're going to see today. Anyway, King Neb, he has this dream, and he can't figure it out. So he calls in the magicians, the enchanters, he calls in the, the, the astrologers, and he demands that they interpret his dream. Look, there's something going on underneath the scenes here that I need you to see, and I'm going to point it out. But like any good counterfeit, they explain the dreams in these hyperbolic, easy situations in which like, they bring out a tarot card, or, or they, they have the fortune cookie, and, and they come up with these truisms that, that just make sense, no matter what the dream is. Look, Nebuchadnezzar is tired of that. He's tired of their lies. He's tired of them giving him some fake truism. And he refuses to tell them the dream or the information. And he says, look, if you really understand, if you're really not a counterfeit, tell me what's going on. Verse 9. Here's what he says. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is one sentence for you. You're going to die. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream. And I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The king, he calls their bluff. Right? He, he, he tells them, look, it's, it, it, you better tell me or I'm going to kill you. The king sets up an impossible task, and that's the point. Listen, what you are going to see is that God makes the impossible possible, but it only happens when you recognize that it's only God who can step into the situation. See, God wanted them to get to the end of themselves, Because like you and I, well, oftentimes we just lean back into our type A strategic personalities without recognizing that it is God who does it. Listen, if you're wise enough, if you can sit back for just a second and be wise enough, here's what you'd recognize. That every good gift that you have comes from God. No matter if you think that you did whatever you did to earn it, I think what God wants you to know is that things don't just serendipitously happen. You didn't just... So happened to go to that school and get that job and meet that person to connect with that network and then move in to where you are right now. No, God was in the details. Look, my whole life story is a but God story. You know, I, I told you guys this before. I was born in Germany um, to a German mom and American dad, and it just so happened that my family moved to this middle of nowhere, obscure central Florida town that I just so happened to grow up in. And then I just so happened to play football and be six foot three at that time, 230 pounds. And my high school football team just so happened to be ranked number one in the nation. We had the nation's longest win streak and I just so happened to get an athletic scholarship to go play at Northern Illinois University where I just so happened to get involved with Campus Crusade for Christ where a guy pursued me and I just so happened to get injured and have to transfer to this prestigious Harvard of the South University called Georgia Southern University, where I just so happened to get caught up in campus outreach, and I just so happened to become a pastor. Y'all, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My daddy wasn't a pastor. I didn't have all these things lined up for me. God was in the details. Like, it was a but God story the entire time. Even standing here in front of you today isn't like I'm some lineage of people who just always walk with Jesus. No, I grew up in a struggle. I'm one of 13 kids. My dad was super abusive, and my mother is still addicted to meth. So if you want to have one of those stories about how did you get here today, but God. Some of you need to recognize that God is in the details of your life too, and it might not look like mine, but God is the one who's working it all out. And it's God's goodness. It's God's goodness and it's his kindness in these moments. And yet, here's what I need you to see. Sometimes when God works out in the details the things that are going on, it doesn't always look so great. Daniel is facing a death sentence. His the crazy thing is, is he doesn't know the dream. And God shows up in that moment in an impossible situation. What you need to understand is that God creates the impossible situations so that you can see his greatness. My question for you is, do you do you rob God of his glory by taking the credit or do you recognize that your story is a but God story too? Listen to what the magi- magicians say back to the king. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and he said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. Bingo, they finally get it right. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show, the, can show it to the king except the gods who dwell, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Y'all, what's fascinating to me is it finally got to the end of their fragility that they recognized that their tricks and antics aren't going to work anymore. You see, there's something that happens whenever you get to the end of yourself. And again, what you need to understand is that the underlying storyline of Daniel chapter 2 is that this world is filled with counterfeits. We might not have magicians in 2023, but do you know what you do have? You have a world that overpromises and underdelivers. The next self-help book that promises you a happier life. The next fad diet that tells you a faster way to fat loss. Right? The drugs that help you to escape to another world. The cultural pressures that tell you that you can be anything you want to be. They're all counterfeits. They don't get to the deepest and, and most intimate details of your heart. The solution's not going to be found with the next self-help book. You see, what you need to understand and what you need to recognize is the only thing that will satisfy the deepest desires of your heart is God alone. And what you need to do is you need to get to the point where you say, it's only possible with God. Well, the enchanters, the magicians, they realize this. They realize that they can't do anything. And Daniel finds out that they get lumped, he gets lumped in with this angry, erotic king. And he finds out he's going to die. So Daniel tells the captain of the king's guard to set up a time that he can talk to the king and interpret the dream. Look at verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in, and he requested that the king appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. You know what's crazy about all this? Daniel didn't know the interpretation of the king. What Daniel probably would have known is that the magicians already went in and asked for more time, and the the king told them he's going to kill them if they don't come up with it immediately, and yet Daniel gets favor from the Lord again. Because he doesn't wait on God to answer the dream before he acts in faith. What Daniel knew was the character of God. He had a massive confidence in who God was, and he acted that way. Y'all, here's a principle that I need you to get, and I've said it multiple times, and you need to remember it. Write it down. Faith first. Faith first. See, before God revealed the dream to Daniel, Daniel had to exercise faith. That's how it works. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel went back to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. You see the order? You recognize it? Daniel went to the captain of the guard first. He went to Arioch first. Then he went home, and he prayed, and he prayed like somebody who actually believed God. And then God revealed the vision to Daniel in a dream. What I find fascinating, the irony here, is one man's dream is another man's nightmare. God shows up to those who have faith. Y'all, what kind of faith do we have when we only act after the fact? I've asked you this before, because I think some of you passively sit around waiting for God to do a miracle in your life. And I think sometimes God's sitting around, sitting there saying, I'm waiting on you. Don't you realize that I can part the Red Seas, that I can open up the heavens, I can do anything I want, and instead of you passively waiting on me, God's like, why don't you act in faith and see what happens? Here it is, faith first, then results. Faith first, then results. Can I just tell you two practical things that made this possible for Daniel that I think will be practical for you too? Here's number one. Daniel believed God. Listen, to me. I'm pretty convinced that most people sitting in this room or watching online believe in God. Like most of you believe that Jesus really is who he said that he is. You really believe that he did what he said that he did. I, I don't ever question that. My question for you is, do you actually believe God? Like do you believe whenever God tells you to take up your cross and follow him? Which, if you will, that was a radical claim. Like that was like, Hey, be willing to die for me kind of claim. Do you go all in with Jesus because you believe him? See, Daniel's reaction wasn't made out of spontaneity. He wasn't in this oh my moment where he doesn't know what's gonna go on. No, Daniel's reaction was formed through years of cultivating a relationship with God and seeing Jesus or God's past faithfulness in his life. Daniel watched God provide for him as the king told him he had to have a certain diet and Daniel said no. Listen, Daniel based his present situation on God's past faithfulness. And that's the key to believing God. The key to believing God in your life is basing your present situation on what you know to be true of God's past faithfulness, both in your life and in his word, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, then there's a power in him that can do anything in this world. The key to believing God in your present situation is basing your life off God's past faithfulness. And the only way that's possible is through humility. It's to recognize that he is God and you are not. I love this. St. Augustine said the three most important virtues in the Christian life are this. Humility, humility, humility. It all boils down to that. Do you actively, I've told you this, humility in the Bible is never a noun, it's always a verb. It's not who you are, it's what you do. Do you actively lower yourself to the point that you can transfer your faith or belief from yourself to your God. See, where you act like this is where you know the promises of God. Do you know the promises of God? Do you? Like, like this, Philippians 4:19, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9:8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 12. His grace is sufficient for you, his power is made perfect in weakness. 1 Corinthians 13, eight, his love never fails. Psalm 27, you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. John six, Jesus knows his sheep and they will hear his voice and he will never drive them away. 1 Peter 5, seven, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now I know, I know I speak a million miles an hour, by the way, if you ever want my transcript, I'll just email it to you. I, I write it all out here. Do you know the promises? You know, there's over 8,000 of them in the Bible. Over 8,000 promises of God. Do you know them? When you meditate on them day and night, it will become your guide in uncertainty so that you can live for a better kingdom. Here's number two. Daniel lived in community. I want you to notice that as soon as Daniel did this, he went back home and he found his friends and he prayed with them. Listen, God has designed us for community and he often reveals himself through the wise counsel of our community. This is implicit in the text, but you get the sense that Daniel went back to his friends for affirmation. And by them seeking the Lord in prayer together, they were affirming that this was a wise decision. If they didn't, they would have told Daniel, whoa, you might wanna chill out, but that's not what happens. See, the church and particularly your small group is a built-in mechanism that I would say God uses for us to walk through life together. What, what we're not trying to do around here is create Bible studies where we, walk, where we hang out together for an hour a week and never talk to one another. We're trying to build community so that whenever you're walking through the uncertainties of life, you walk through life with one another and then you bounce your decisions off of each other. Here, here's something I've learned. Most of us make decisions in isolation Watch this, because we already know they're a bad decision and we just don't wanna to be told otherwise, All right? We're just selfish and we know what we wanna do, so I just don't want, to, I don't want you to tell me that I'm making a bad decision. You know, there are so many, so many bad decisions that have been avoided by simply bringing it to your community and asking them what they think, inviting them into conversation. I'm telling you, that's why small groups are vital to your life. They are built in community where God's counsel happens through community. There are two mistakes that I see happen all the time in the Christian life when it comes to engaging culture. Here here they are. Christians either assimilate or they isolate from culture. Assimilation means that you just simply become exactly like culture. Isolation means that you become like a monk that goes and lives your life in your little holy huddle like the Amish did. Both of those are wrong, and neither one of those are what Daniel did. Daniel engaged his culture by living in gospel community and then allowing that to inform the decisions that he made. See, God has a third way. It's not assimilation, it's not isolation, it's transformation. God has called his people to live in the middle of culture because he wants you to transform culture from the inside out. And when we live in community within this community, God begins to show the world around you a better way. Now, real quick, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice Daniel's response after God reveals the dream to Daniel. Look at it. It's his song, if you will, in verse 20. Daniel answered and he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. You could do a whole sermon series on this. But what I want you to notice right now is that Daniel acknowledges and recognizes the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. Y'all, once Daniel recognizes that God is the only one who could have ever moved, In this situation, he then acknowledges in gratitude all the gifts that God has given. Again, I think that's the point. There's a sense, listen, there's a sense in which God cares, watch this, this is so important. He cares more about the posture of your heart in the situation than he does about changing your situation. Here's how I would say it. The dream was secondary to the worship. God cared more about Daniel's heart than he did about interpreting the dream. You you realize this, right? God understands that this world is not all that there is. If Daniel died in that moment at the hands of a crazy king, he was gonna live forever in the presence of a glorious God. God cared more about the worship. The main point of Daniel's song is that the all-knowing God really is the only one that can give revelation. By the way, did you know that the Bible is the only holy book in the entire world that makes bold, concrete, prophecies and historically validates those concrete claims that it makes? Let me just ask you, have you positioned your life in such a way that you recognize that everything is a gift from God, that he can change times and seasons, that he puts rulers where they are, and can you worship him for it? Y'all, some of you, you live with so much anxiety, Like, like you're worried about who's in the White House. Can I just tell you, your king is not in the White House. He's, in the, he's on the throne of God in heaven. And it doesn't really matter if a Democrat or a Republican occupies that seat. It is God who moves kings and kingdoms. You realize God is in control. For some of you, you need to stop worrying about all those things, and you need to understand who your God is and acknowledge him. See, if you're going to thrive in culture, you've got to get to the point where you give credit where credit is due. Daniel didn't know the king's dream but he knew that God was the one who gives wisdom. And when Daniel acted in faith, he gave God the credit. Listen to me, there's something absolutely powerful about a life that can trust God, that can can sit back and posture yourself in such a way that you confess that every good gift that you have is a gift from God and God is in control of it all anyway. People that can do that have absolutely nothing to worry about and that's when you can put your head on your pillow and go to bed at night. All right, keep going. So Daniel, he, he, he gets the interpretation, he worships God, and then he goes and he summons the king, and listen to what he says in verse 27. Daniel answered the king and he said, no, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, if you underline words, if you circle words, this phrase right here is so important, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Can we just pause for a second? Can you you listen to that phrase? But there is a God in heaven. Y'all, that is the most important phrase in the entire Bible and how you answer this question will determine everything else in your life. Do you believe there is a God in heaven? Because that's the question behind every question. See, do you believe that there is a God in heaven? If you do, can I just ask you why so many of us still live as if we're functional atheists? Why we have all of our strategies in place and we we do everything we can. And honestly, we only pray whenever we've exhausted every other resource. The key to living a bold faith and a bold life is answering that question. Do you believe there is a God in heaven? Y'all, some of you need to get to the end of yourselves like Nebuchadnezzar had to. You need to get to the point where you realize that no human strategy is ever going to be able to answer your life's deepest questions. This morning at about 8.40 a.m., I got a text message from a police officer that uh, I'm a chaplain for the police department, that there was another suicide in town uh, asking me if I could be a part of that and, and it just hit me again. We we live in Milton, Georgia, y'all. Like where everything you could ever have is provided for you. Where you, where you make more money than the rest of the world and it's not even close. Where you have houses, like, but you, 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 we're the only people on earth that run out of clothes hangers. You know why we run out of clothes hangers? Because we have too many clothes. Right? We can't even park our cars. Like, we have little houses for our cars, and we can't park our cars in our little houses called a garage because, well, we fill them up with stuff. So we had to put our, we could make our cars homeless because we got too much stuff in the car's house, right? And then, I, I don't know if you know this or not, statistically, there's enough, um, what are those things called that you, storage units. There's enough storage units for every single person in America to have, one, have their own. We have everything. And it doesn't satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Listen to me, there's a God in heaven. When, when the anxiety is so deep, when the addiction is so strong and you feel like you just can't conquer it anymore, when you've done every strategy and you continue to fail, here's what I need you to know, there is a God in heaven. Like I feel like my job today is just to simply tell you that, right? Whenever, whenever the relationship is just feeling like it's so far from repair, like you can't do anything and you're weary, the counseling's not working and you're just in despair, the next Lisa Turkhurst book isn't going to help you. There is a God in heaven, right? Whenever you've tried everything and your kids just won't listen to you, you've done it all right, you did the homeschool, you brought them into church and they don't love Jesus, listen to me, there is a God in heaven. Church, when you get to the end of yourself and you've exhausted every resource in this world, what you need to know is that there is a God in heaven. Listen to me, there is a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven. I think some of you just need to sit with that for a second. Y'all, Daniel needed a vision from God and he needed God to interpret his dreams. And you need a word from God too. When you live right in the middle of the difficulties of this world, here's what you need to realize and understand and believe there is a God in heaven. What you're gonna see is that the nightmare that tormented King Nebuchadnezzar is actually the answer and the hope for your future. Look at it in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let me take a second and give you the cliff notes version of this interpretation of the dream, and I want to apply it to your life. Daniel, he looks at old King Neb, and he says, hey, there's a statue. The statue of a head of gold, chest of arms of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of clay, and it stood real tall, like real tall, real big. And out of nowhere, this small rock from heaven comes down and crushes that statue. King Neb's like, yeah, I get that. Like, that's plain, but tell me what it means. Here's what it means. The statue represented the kingdoms of this world. And the stone represented the kingdom of God. If you actually go back, the, the, the head of gold would have represented King Nebuchadnezzar. The, he would have been the top of that. And if you go through it, they get progressively weaker. Alexander the Great would have been the next one. And of the great iron age of history, the Roman Empire would be the iron that falls short. Here, here's the deal, though. Without going into all those details, what you need to understand is as mighty as the kingdoms of this world look and as small as the church looks in the middle of culture, what Daniel wants you to know is that God's kingdom is eventually going to crush the kingdoms of this world, and God's kingdom will destroy it like chaff that's blown away in the wind. I want you to notice this. Every single kingdom in this world gets progressively more fragile. You, you see, they start off as gold and they end as clay. God is communicating to you that the world's systems and culture is moving towards disunity and dystopia. They're not moving towards becoming better. You're not getting more enlightened. The world's not getting progressively better. You think I'm lying to you. Here's here's the deal. I I saw this in the New York Times. Over the last 3,400 years, it is estimated that we've only had 268 years of peace. And in 2003 alone, there were over 30 wars going on in the world at the same time. Y'all, if you think that we're getting more enlightened and the world is getting better and easier, you are just wrong. Every year it gets worse. We just live in a bubble. Look, look at other places in the world. Here, here, here's Philip he said it like this Jesus likened the kingdom of God to small things salt on meat, yeast in bread, a tiny seed in a garden. As to emphasize, we dare not judge the gospel's impact by numbers. Y'all, Yo, you might think you're small, but you're not insignificant. I'm telling you, the mightiest things on the planet start off as small things because God wants you to realize that you can't take the credit for this. In church, don't forget where we came from, right? A few of us had a dream and a vision, right, Emily, where we moved to another city because we believed that God was going to do something. Listen, five years later, I have seen God do far more than what I could ever ask or imagine. I've seen him heal marriages. I've walked with some of you through the most difficult times. My wife and I, this summer, whenever we thought that we are gonna lose our son and whenever we didn't know what was gonna happen with her, we walked and were loved by you and cared for by you like ways that have mended us together relationally that I just can't even express how much I love and care for you. Y'all, I've watched God deepen our relationships. I've watched God grow our faith. I've watched Gene over the last five years, God walk with you to a situation where you didn't know where your job was gonna be and you worked like an hour away and you watched God provide through every step. I've watched him do it over and over and over again. I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about lives. And I'm talking about how God has changed our lives together. (laughs) God is building his kingdom. I'm just telling you, don't be fooled by what this world will tell you. Jesus said it in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is fine. It has been for 2,000 years. It's the only thing that's survived. When everything else in all of culture says they're doomed, you're doomed, you're doomed. You know what God's church keeps doing? Keeps growing, keeps loving, keeps reaching people, and God's kingdom keeps expanding. Don't be fooled by it. See, you might think you're hopeless in this world, but God uses small things to do amazing things. Here's a principle. Thriving in Babylon only happens when you live in light of the larger story. See, God gives you these stories to remind you that no matter how hopeless you might think your situation is, he's building his kingdom. No matter how small and insignificant you might think we are in the middle of a culture that seems to be winning and dominating the day, they're not. King Jesus is coming back, and he will come back like a small thing, but he will become a mighty mountain. Corey Timboom. Never be afraid to entrust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. Y'all, that's it. You might not know the future, but you know the one who holds the future in his hands. By the way, look at this. Look at verse 34. I want to point this out to you. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands. And it struck the image on its feet of iron clay, and it broke them into pieces. You know what's fascinating about that stone? Matthew 21 and 1 Peter chapter 2 tell you that that stone that was cut out by no human hands is Jesus. Think about it, Jesus, born of a virgin, not by any human hands, came into this world and he was small and insignificant by what everybody thought. He was the least valuable of all the materials. He wasn't like gold to be treasured, he was a stone and yet Jesus, born in a manger, homeless, had no huge following and and the nation seemed to be mightier than him. This Jesus tells you that the kingdom of God, even though it might look small and insignificant and most people will miss it, is going to work just like it did 2,000 years ago. The way that you thrive in Babylon is by putting your trust in the fact that God is going to do it. See, Jesus has already proven his love for you, didn't he? He proved his love for you by the cross and he proved his power over death by the resurrection. My question for you is, are you gonna have the confidence to live in the middle of this culture? Because the only way you're gonna do that is to know that God is building his kingdom. Listen to what he says, verse 44. And in those days, In those days of the king, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. Y'all, this is sort of certain and sure. Here's what you need to know: God builds his kingdom. It is certain and it is sure, and he builds it through his church. See, the way that God chose to tear down the kingdoms of this world is by you and I living in the middle of culture. That's what I get, that's what I need you to understand. God's plan is for us to live in culture and to do it from the inside out. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that when believers when believers like you and I don't completely assimilate and we don't isolate, but we engage by living for another kingdom in this world, by living for a better kingdom, what we end up seeing is God changed the culture around us. Let me give you real quick three practical things from this text that can help you to live in the middle of this culture and be an instrument in the hands of your Redeemer. Here they are. Number one, be ready. Be ready. You know, if you go back through the story of Daniel, if you go back through Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 2, Daniel doesn't jockey for positions in front of the king. He simply faithfully follows God. And then when the time comes for him to step into the scenes, he's ready to speak. Let me just ask you, when God is ready to give you a platform, are you going to be ready to speak? Like, do you spend time in the disciplines of God's words? Do you know the promises of God? Are you investing in a relationship with him so that when the impossible presents itself, you can interpret the impossible by looking at a God who makes the impossible possible? There are going to be times in your life when God is going to position you in what seems like an impossible situation. And my question for you is, will you have the faith necessary to exercise it and to see that it's God who speaks? Y'all, the most important and the most practical way to do this is to live a holy life. Here's what I mean by that. Holiness, holiness is God's gift to you to make your life better. Skip Isaac. Listen to what he says. For most people, holiness is God's least attractive attribute. They'd rather focus on his love, goodness, or creativity. But in the Bible, God is called holy more than he is called anything else. Holiness is wholeness. We aren't really complete until we're set apart for him and made Yo, know, this world, it seems like it can offer you everything, and yet it just leaves you empty. I've told you this before, but the thing that has changed my life more than anything is realizing that walking with Jesus is not restricting. It's actually freeing. It's made me be a better person and a more joyful person. And I've lived long enough to know that the things of this world don't satisfy Some of you are going to spend your entire life climbing the corporate ladder only to find out that it was leaning up against the wrong wall the entire time. And you're going to get to the end and you're going to be like, I wish that I could have done it differently. You know, I've never met somebody that walked with Jesus their entire life and got to the end and said, I wish I could have done it differently. I've met a whole host of people that have said the opposite. See, personal holiness is God's way of sanctifying you. It's God's way of making you whole again. It's the greatest gift God can give you and if you will walk in it, It will prepare you for those platforms. Here's number two, real quick. Faith first, then worship. See, bold faith and confidence in God is one of the greatest ways to show the world that you trust him. And listen, everything we do is an act of worship. I get so frustrated sometimes, if I can just be honest and vulnerable for a second. Whenever I hear, I hear people say it all the time, well, yeah, I just kind of worship God like this. Y'all, Yo, you realize that we're all passionate about something? You don't believe me? Show up at anybody's house in here on a Saturday afternoon during a Georgia football game and tell me they're not passionate. You're raising your hands, right? You're celebrating. You're probably sacrificing an animal on the altar of Georgia football. And my question for you is, listen, I love football. I'm a big football. I call it. I call Saturdays at my house family football fun day and my kids resent me for it. I love it. But why is it that we are so passionate about football or sports and we are not that passionate about Jesus? Why is it that, that we're afraid to do this in church but I'm just telling you, you go to any football stadium in America and they're doing this all the time. Men, men are excited, exuberant, And then we come in here and we cower down and we don't lead our families in worship. Now I'm just telling you, man, if you wanna see the next generation change, why don't you become vulnerable and weak in front of Jesus and show your family that that's what it looks like. What you will see is you will see God move passionately. Here's the question. Do your actions communicate to the people around you that you love Jesus and that you worship him? Or are you just as passionate on Sunday mornings as you are on Saturday afternoons? What? What drives your heart? Last one, and I know I'm going over, so let me go quick. Know the gospel. Know the gospel. Guys, there's a lot going on in this dream, but here's what you need to know is the entire thing's about Jesus. It's a foretelling of him. Jesus tells you that he was the rock that the builders rejected. Jesus will tell Peter, right? Peter, upon your confession of faith, upon this rock, I will build my church. Yo, know, you, you see, the whole thing, the whole thing is about Jesus and his church. It's the confession. And I don't want you to miss this. The entire Bible is about Jesus. And if you get Jesus right, you'll get everything else right. God's kingdom will prevail. For some reason, we're super impressed by, by the world's kingdoms. We're, we're super impressed by the things that, that are going on around us. Can I just tell you, if you want to know what God thinks about the Roman Empire or the United States of America, just go back up and read the passage. Y'all, God is building a better kingdom. And it might seem small and insignificant, but I'm telling you, he's not impressed by your little kingdoms. He is building something then everything else is gonna fade away. It's going to go like the wind blows it away. The gospel is about having the right perspective and living for the right kingdom. And listen, Jesus' primary objective was not to come and crush the kingdoms. His primary objective is to come and love the world, John three sixteen. He came to be your rock of salvation. He came to be that, that which you build your life and foundations on. But unfortunately, There's only two options, guys. He will either be the rock of your salvation or he will be the rock that crushes you. See, if you live for culture and you build your life on culture, I'm just telling you, it's not a firm foundation. Just to be clear, Jesus' rock is his church. It's how he has decided, the vehicle by which he's decided to break his kingdom into the world. And I'm just telling you, there's nothing more important to give your life to than his church. Y'all, 2,500 years ago, God came to King Nebuchadnezzar in a dream to show you the confidence that you should have in him. You need to know this. Jesus is either going to be the rock of your salvation that you build your life on, and he will build his kingdom through you, or he's going to crush us. Because at the end, at the end, you have to choose. There are no other options. Matthew 21, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone That was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Is he the stone that you rejected or is he marvelous in your eyes? Jesus came to make you a practical offer. He will either be Lord of all or he won't be Lord at all. Listen to me, there is a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven and he has called you by name. He has lived your perfect life, he has died your death and he came to build his kingdom through you. There is a God in heaven. You want to have confidence to live in Babylon? There's a God in it. Father, we need that. More than anything, we need that. We need confidence to live right now in the middle of our culture to know that you are, you're good, you're kind, you know what you're doing. Even when the world around us seems to be crumbling, you are fine, you are secure. Even when you seem small and insignificant, you are going to come and you're going to be a great, mighty mountain. Lord, thank you that you told us the end of the story. Thank you that there is a God in heaven. Help us to receive with goodness and gladness and kindness of heart the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.